Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. Did I ever tell this story about when I met her? I interviewed her? Oprah? It was amazing. I interviewed her at the Women in the World conference that Tina Brown did, and I was doing like stuff for Daily Beast, and um, I got the good interviews, and the other person that was doing them was uh, my pal, Tony DeCoupel, who was like, I remember talking to him on the way there and he was like, I don't really know how to do this stuff. I'm not, he's, he was a bit green on doing the TV stuff. He is now the host of Good Morning America and I'm in an, uh, an apartment in Chinatown with you fucking idiots. So uh, is, I, I'm glad you took is, my advice. I didn't take my advice. It is Nancy Rommelman's apartment, which... I don't want to give away where Nancy lives because they're like Beatles fans. They show up and pull their hair out and okay. the rest of it. But yeah, so Oprah, I, I interviewed her and... Um, there was one bit, she's talking to this um, woman who was like setting up, doing something in Africa, and it was like... When was this? 2015, maybe? 14, 15? And there's a great, uh, I have a gif of it somewhere, I can't find it, where she tried to give me a high five and I nagged her by mistake. Oh. Did I tell you about this? Oh. I was oh. like doing, I was like <laughs> doing a thing about how I was a loser to Oprah. I was like nervous because I was the only person I ever get nervous in front of was Oprah. And she was like, so how have you, like, how's your been? Your been? And I'm like, I don't know, I'm a fucking loser. Nothing's working. And she's like, you know, and she made a joke like, I've had a hard year too. Because it was the big scandal in, in, with her school in Africa. Do you remember this? Oh, She had yeah, a big scandal. Exactly, yeah. And then she was like, you know, me and you both. And she put her hand up. And I was like, I had my head in my hands. I was like, I was like literally like Richard Lewis. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, it's terrible. And the fucking camera guy was like, you just totally ganked Oprah. And I was like, what? Left her hanging? That was it. That was your shot right there. I know. She that would have been like. Your life. You get a billion. I was like, really? You host Good Morning America. <laughs> I was like, awesome. Great. And it was like, you, you get a show on like CMT or something. I don't know what I, but yeah, so she, uh, the best thing about it was she gets up afterwards and she was so awesome. She was super sweet, super nice. And she, before this is swear to God, she had this woman on and she was like, you know, it must be so hard, like living this life, and you know you have to build these schools out of nothing. And she's talking about this woman. She's talking about building in Africa, Afghanistan, whatever it was, some place that was not easy to do what she was doing. And Oprah's like, you know, it's. It, she said, I swear to God, she said, do you ever think, like, look at America? You come to America and say, man, I have such a hard life, and these people have it so easy. And the woman was like, no, I love it here. It was like totally like kind of during the interview. Afterwards, with that in my head, afterwards, she's standing there with this woman after I had interviewed both of them, too. And I'm talking to Oprah, and I'm like, this is the fucking best. And then all of a sudden, this woman comes out of nowhere, like a fucking ball boy at, like, the U.S. Open, like, on her knees, <laughs> comes out, takes Oprah's flats off, and puts fucking heels on her. With Oprah doesn't even move. Doesn't even wow. move. She's like talking to me. And, like, this, like, the fucking pit crew comes out and changes her shoes. And I was, like, looking at her, and I was, like, what the fuck? She just got, like, five inches taller and talking. Again, super nice. She was lovely. And then I was, like, thought back to that question. I was, like, do you ever think that Americans are spoiled? And I was, like, you just had someone change your fucking shoes in public. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I was, like, but at the end of it, you know, I like Oprah. She was, she was cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's never fly commercial. That's what happens then. <laughs> So there's my Oprah story. There you go. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 Column.
I want to uh, correct a wrong from the last time that we were in this apartment. We drank maybe one and a half <laughs> bottles of wine from uh, Brett uh, Urich, not Urlich, but Urich, from uh, Richland, Washington, who wrote a really sweet mail here from December 20th, 2019. This okay. will give you a sense of what the booze backlog has been like. And tonight before... You just like to let those bottles of wine age a little bit, right? Yeah, you know, just like... Uh, uh, just, anyways, I am a newish listener to the program. Not, not anymore, Brett. You're not... <laughs> Uh, if we still have you, uh, but I immediately fell in love. Thank you. Also, blah, blah, blah. Uh, in the spirit of a podcast, which over indexes for libertarians, well put, I have enclosed two bottles of untaxed homemade wine that my family, including myself, produces from vine to table as a hobby. Mm. Uh, the first bottle is Gewürztraminer, uh, which has ripe notes of stone fruit and pineapple with slight hints of liché. I'm, you would want me to mispronounce that, so yeah. it happened. The acid and sugar are in balance <laughs> to avoid the cloying sweetness of a dessert wine, and that's actually accurate, and finishes with a crisp citrus flavor. Best enjoyed, chilled, we did. Uh, the second bottle is made from Merlot grapes and sits somewhere between a rosé and a traditional full-bodied Merlot. This is achieved by doing a bunch of other stuff. Anyways, they were so good. They were so good. They were so, they were so crazy good. good. Which is probably why you like you like yada yada yada. The fa- then you read the actual, his actual descriptions of the wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> like, like I'm gonna go and read the notes of the heavy the note, the heavy thighs, and the lychees and the luchies and the Susan luchies. It was great. Uh, also, uh, one, very good wine. Wanted to get some more lawyer guests, such as Scott Greenfield, mm-hmm. Adam Steinbaugh, Ken White. Uh, or Ari Khan. What? Why are you laughing? Ken can come back. I got no problem yeah. with that. Um, How would you send him a DM now that he's blocked you? <laughs> <laughs> Look, you guys can talk to him. When I talk, it'll just be white noise. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. I uh, also wanted a live show in the Pacific Northwest, as we all do. I think back when we were still talking about that, uh, Nancy still lived in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. But uh, yeah, one day live shows. That but- was part of our whole uh, uh, subscribe to the Patreon now, you suckers. Um, it was part of the whole Patreon thing was we were got it up and we're like, let's go on the road. And then we'll have all the Patreon people out and it'd be great. And then... And then, you know, Bat Soup gave everyone uh, the coronavirus. I don't want to derail because point guard going to point guard. But, like, uh, as everyone was, was freaking out and, like, oh, my God, he's never going to accept the results of the election. He's going to do the coup. Um, and a, a moment of high anxiety about all of that, which I presume was in the first week. You tweeted out something like, if I'm wrong about this, and, and Camille, you can correct my interpretation as necessary. Uh, if I'm wrong about this, it'll be... One of the most consequential misjudgments of my public speaking career. But if I'm right about it, maybe a lot of people should think about the level and the pitch of nonstop hysteria about this president and about this this political character that's been with us for even the last, you know, sort of five years. And like maybe that has created pathologies of its own that are worth thinking about. And today, and we're recording this on, I believe, a Tuesday, right, um, of Thanksgiving week, you tweeted out, you're getting increasingly E.E. E. Cummings-y on, on, on the Twitter. Just it, no it was just like, just like, I told you. Before we get into Camille uh, celebrating how right he is, can I throw some cold water on this? Yeah, one? yeah, please. Just a little bit. Yeah, but. This, is, this is good. I just want to fuck with Camille on this one. Yeah. Uh-oh. We have a lot of people uh, listening to <laughs> 
listen to this podcast who are super crypto nerds. Um, and I texted Camille about a month and a half ago. Ooh. And I said, by the way, ask blank. I shall not. Uh, ask blank, but I would suggest that you buy the dip right now on Bitcoin. Oh. Camille's response 11,000 isn't a dip. Uh, Bitcoin hit 19,000. <laughs> 19,000 yesterday. So, always right? This motherfucker poll. I didn't say I was always right. <laughs> I can't believe what a day trading scumbag. Mostly right. And a crypto only, day trading scumbag. The only thing, the reason I thought about that was because Nancy said something about buying Bitcoin. And I was like, yeah, I've been advising. I advise Camille. And I was like, <laughs> iMessage search, which is like the worst search ever. But I still was like, I'm going to find this shit. Look, there's a reason I don't host a podcast about block coin trading yeah. and selecting your shit coin. I don't, shit I don't coin do that. To, yeah. That's not this podcast. I'm the guy who talks to you about media hysteria. That's what I do. Try to stay in my lane where I'm. You're trustworthy. trustworthy. You're trustworthy on that. And admittedly, I'm not Nostradamus. We we just so happen to live in a time where nearly everyone is out of their fucking gourd. So it's only so difficult to make those calls. But Matt, I should say, I just want to clarify this. The tweets you were referring to earlier were in reply to a question from a listener. Right, right, right. Um, and Applebaum had, had tweeted something uh, around like November 11th. And it was when Trump was making some changes at the Pentagon. And her tweet was, Trump is replacing the leadership at the Pentagon. Why? And uh, Kevin Weiss, who is a, a, a presumably a listener, tweets at you and me uh, and Moynihan. And he says, guys, are you concerned about this? Why or why not? And he's got a bunch of question marks in there. So it's clear he's, he's worried about this. And my replies were to him. And I said, just to be very, very clear, so I'm not claiming too much credit or, you know, overblowing things. The Trump-Biden standoff is obviously unusual. Post-election staff shakeups are not. You cannot say that I'm surprised or overly concerned. Petty score settling is super on brand for Trump. And canning the USAID boss was among the first moves. That's hardly a power play, dude. It just does not seem like a dark omen to me. Um, and yes, as we went on, he said, I hope you're right. And then I responded, yeah, me too. If I'm wrong, it may be the most consequential error I've made ever. So not even just in my sort of public speaking career, whatever the hell that may actually mean. Um, if everyone excited about this turns out to be wrong, it may be one more time they've made fantastically bad predictions about this White House. A Trumpian coup d'etat is still a low probability event. And I, I used the phrase blackest of swans, which I probably used on the podcast at some other point as well. It's almost proof of there not being a coup. If you're firing, I don't remember the person that you're talking about. If you're probably firing somebody at the USDA and that's what you can actually accomplish. USAID, actually. That's what you can do. I can do that. I can fight, but can you take over the government and stay on for another four years, another 40 years? Uh, well, no, you can't. And the thing is, is that the argument now is that, well, he failed, but he wanted to. Okay. I always used to make a joke about people that I would meet in New York City. And this is when you're younger and you meet the people like, what do you do? I'm a filmmaker. What film have you made? I've made a film. Well, you're not a filmmaker. Like, I would like to be, you know, the ambassador to France. I don't call myself that. I, would, I aspire to it. Aspiration is fine, great, who cares? The thing that one should say, rather than hanging to these thinnest of reeds, is to say what I said in 2016, and I think I was right about this, and probably said at the beginning of the podcast, 
our institutions are pretty strong and they resist a lot of this nonsense. And, you know, we thought at the beginning of this administration, when the Republican Party controlled uh, both, uh, both houses and the presidency, and we thought they were going to drive a freight train through Washington and it was just going to be, you know, what happened? Fuck all. They couldn't even get people in their own party to agree on things. John McCain, thumbs down, every, across the board. They couldn't get anything done. They didn't even have a health care plan. In the one that they did come up with, Trump didn't like it. and said it was mean. I always go back to that, which I always think is my the, the, the crystallized version of his presidency. That was mean. I sent it back. And it's like, well, you're pretty mean too. <laughs> it's kind of strange. But this kind of thing is like, Okay, so he aspired to one. Well, I don't even think that's true, but let, granting that, so what? A lot of people would love, like Rudy Giuliani after 9-11. You remember when he was like, I want to be, uh, I want to be the mayor for a little longer because you need me. I'm America's mayor. Do you remember this? Yeah. And only Michael Bloomberg could actually accomplish that. Well, yes, which he did, of course. And, you know, there was a moment where everyone, including Mark Green, his Democratic opponent, uh, Bloomberg's Democratic opponent, were like, okay, maybe that's a thing that we can deal with. But that, like, people want to do these things and they're not, they don't happen. So what? So what? Because that is not what we were talking about, right? He aspired, and look, we had a previous guest, in which, which um, our last guest, um, Jason Stanley, who's a lovely guy, and I'm glad we had him on. Um, but I will say that Jason's argument is essentially that he is an aspirational fascist. I don't care. That's not. See, this is the thing that I think that w- what we should come away from all of this with. One idea is that we're so polarized. Yeah, no, we are. It's partially your fault. Because when you start using words like coup and fascism all the time, but they fail. They're aspirational as, no, but that's not what you're talking about. You're saying it might, we're on the precipice of fascism. We're on the precipice of a Latin American style coup and everyone is in full froth. And then we say, we're too polarized. Come on now. You don't take any responsibility for that? Saying these things? Well, I'm just warning. No, you're not. You're not just warning. You're predicting and there's a lot of that predicting, and that comes from a lot of people. A lot of people made a lot of money on this. Lincoln Project people, you know, uh, you know, Tim Snyder people. I mean, these books of, like, everybody's making a ton of money on, on the fact that what did Donald Trump accomplish? What did he do? Maybe that's what we talk about. What the wreck of this presidency, which I think was a colossally terrible presidency in a lot of ways, probably different than most of the... Uh, People heavy breathing about it think it was a terrible presidency. But where is the permanent damage or the short-term damage? I can name things. So before you send emails saying, well, what about this? I have a bunch of things. But was it what we, our worst fears, were they realized? Well, here's a way of looking at that. One uh, short answer to the last question is the way that he affected the immigration law and apparatus is going to be with us for 10 years. 100%. Like the actual bureaucracy for even thinking about accepting refugees doesn't exist. It has to be restarted from scratch. There was a vetting process that existed before Trump of vetting refugees, and it wasn't some kind of rubber stamp thing. It actually took a really long time, and it, it could have been improved. But like removing entire offices from existing and then putting the cap at zero and then saying that we're not going to accept people from a bunch of other countries. You can't restart that in a day. That's like materially damaging both to the people who can't come in anymore, but also just to any kind of future process. Um, uh, What's the like biggest this- one after that, though? Because I mean, I think that 
that broadly we probably I think, all agree on the immigration thing is was was at the very very least very very poorly. Handled. I think I think ultimately specific immigration travel banned intentional family separation, mm-hmm. the family sponsorship stuff. Like 80% of immigration to this country has been you bring your mom or your dad or your kid or whatever. That was chopped down beginning this year. So like it takes a lot of time for those things to happen. But once they happen, to undo them is going to take a lot of time too. And that's it's we're talking about U.S. citizens are going to be unable to bring their family, their loved ones from abroad. That's a really bad, damaging thing to millions of Americans, actual Americans who are here. So that's going to take a long time. I think after that, it, it's a mostly a culture question. Yes, I think that's right. And, and it's an important culture question. Think about the post-election craziness, the Giuliani hair dye, the crazy Sidney Powell Absolutely. stuff. The most insane thing I've ever seen. No, but like it's. But I don't know if you actually listened to her on Saturday on Newsmax, but she's like, well, not only is Hugo Chavez involved, but like, I'm just saying, throwing out there. Governor Kemp? This sounds like CIA. Oh. She, oh like, it yeah. came all the way back around. Okay. And by the way, it's because Tucker Carlson denounced her. I can horseshoe theory this. The same people that you were criticizing, and rightly so, for just being fascism coup, fascism coup for four years. And also election interference uh-huh. and, and like tampering in Russia and Putin. Like, oh my God, they're going to defund the USPS. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was recent. What Trump and the Trump rump is doing, the people who I think are largely grifters who realize that there is a consumer base for this, a future political base, and, and I think Republicans are terrified to, to get on the wrong side of it. There's just a large number of Republican voting people out there who want to believe the craziest shit possible. So by adding to the sense that it's all rigged, it's all against you, it's a scam and whatever, Democrats and the resistance, they are adding to horseshoe theory. Like the thing that I would tell those people, I remember saying this on Bill Maher pretty early in the Trump presidency, is like, don't go out there and say that just because a Republican appointed a judge that you know the outcomes of everything. Because if you suggest such cynicism, you're going to encourage people to believe that is the purpose of appointing judges. You're going to encourage a culture that not in 2020, but in 2022 or 24 or 28 becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy of badness that you suggest. If you actually have trust in the institutions and try to bolster them instead, rather than positing conspiracy theories, it's going to be less attractive to people to view every aspect of politics, including media, including the judiciary, as this zero-sum club-wielding game. So this is the thing. Certainly when I hear people talk about culture and when we've talked about norms here, a lot of that is about the consequences of a Trump presidency for the institutions, for the democracy, the the notion that Donald Trump talking about the election being stolen creates this atmosphere where people mistrust the institutions. We've seen the polling recently that suggests an extraordinarily high percentage of Republicans think that the last election was stolen. The thing, though, is that I can't remember an election in my lifetime, or at least in the last 30 years, it's almost my lifetime, um, where the losing party accepted that loss gracefully. 
And it's unusual for it to be the incumbent who's in office who ends up losing and then has to accept it gracefully. 2008. But, 2008 Republicans. It was it was the only blowout of the probably of your yeah. lifetime. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, like broadly speaking, that's true. I think 2008 there wasn't. And, it and also in, helped that McCain was, you know. And I, I mean, the 2000, guy. the 2000 fight sort of sets the stage for a lot of these fights. And even there, at least, this is a justifiable fight. They're fighting over this technicality, but the hanging chads were a thing. This is a, a genuine problem that has to be adjudicated as the courts end up getting involved. Versus Diebold, which was a fantasy problem. Uh, agreed. But this sets the stage. Yeah. It's not as though Democrats ever really got over that loss. It is still believed widely that that election was stolen from them. And virtually every subsequent election in one way, shape or form has been stolen. There is some underlying narrative about how, how deep the corruption goes and what's wrong. And even the Trump presidency began under just that sort of cloud of suspicion and paranoia. And I think the rot runs incredibly de- deep. And when it comes to perspectives on the Trump presidency, the broadly shared beliefs about the role of Facebook and Russia in leading the president to office. Hillary Clinton helping to proliferate that mythology while she was running and continuing to talk about the stolen election as though I conceded to save the union. But we know he stole the election. And by the way, during this last (laughs) race, she says to Joe Biden, don't concede. Don't ever concede. They were expecting a bloody fight. And it is certainly true that Donald Trump is ridiculous enough to make the whole scene all the more absurd. But we were headed for a battle just like this. We didn't know that there would be hair dye dripping down (laughs) Rudy Giuliani's face, which actually, in in some ways, actually makes the whole thing a little bit more tolerable. For all of the hysterical nonsense about fascism, oh my God, we're all going to die. For the most part, people are laughing hysterically at this complete fucking circus. It is not as though there's ever been anything remotely like a plurality of Republicans who have supported what Donald Trump is doing. For the most part, they've held their noses and said shit like, look, he has every right to go down the road and to check every single option Elected that he Republicans. can. And, oh, and, and in many instances, people have said things publicly, as you said, Matt, it's in your political interest to try to be on the side of these people and endorse the perspective of Donald Trump, which is there's something very unfair about yeah, what went it, on it, here. Yeah, into the but elected, I think there's something about just how fucked yeah. up things were and were going to be no matter what. Well, here's and, a way and of, just how silly the sort of Trump of it all is. Here's, here's a way I would suggest to snap out of it, right, of the cycle, because it's really easy to get into an almost kind of nihilistic sense of like this has been happening forever everyone's been doing it for a long time it's like like the it's it's not the dumbest whataboutism mm-hmm. but it's it's the it's the second dumbest whataboutism <laughs> the dumbest whataboutism is well they did it too even though i'm doing it and i like it and denying that i'm doing it <laughs> and denying that i'm doing it that's the dumbest whataboutism and that we steal out of that i still say that's the only whataboutism um <laughs> Perhaps. But the people who I have issue with right now are not the people who say, hey, it's really bad the way that Trump has behaved after the election and contesting it, not even contesting it, but like the conspiracy theories that uh, associated with it. Just the crazy shit that he has said. He's retweeted. It's now Randy Quaid is his legal expert. My God. Um, And the crazy legal team and the uh, phenomenally bad lawsuits, that itself is bad. I don't have any problem with anybody saying that's a terrible thing for a president to do or say. It is, actually, and it's wrong. What I have an issue with is 
after one of the states certified the votes. Maybe it was Pennsylvania. Josh Marshall, TPM, Talking Points Memo, says, seemingly seriously, whoever is in charge of the football, meaning the nuclear football, please know that you don't have to take all the orders. Who's it? Who are we going to nuke? Who, who the fuck do you who think knows? Donald Trump is going to nuke in the day before Thanksgiving or maybe, two days before maybe Thanksgiving? Maybe he's going to revisit the fact that he couldn't buy Greenland from Denmark and nuke the Danes or something. I mean, you know? meanwhile, on like literally the day that Joe Biden announces his foreign policy team, who everyone is, well, not everyone, but, but a few mm. commentators are out there literally Cre- talking about their, their orgasms. Yeah. yeah. And Anthony Blinken, career, well-respected guy. He was in favor not of only of the Libya intervention, but he wrote uh, an essay with Robert Kagan recently as 2019, lamenting that we didn't intervene in Syria. And I like, talked to him about this. I interviewed him in, in 2017, and I'm gonna, I pulled the footage the other day because we didn't use much of it. And it was like an hour and a half. And, and oh, good. There was a bit on, bit on Syria where he got, I think he got, I, that was, I, haven't, I haven't rewatched it, but I remember him getting frustrated with me, um, as did Samantha Power when I, was, I interviewed both of them on this subject, yeah. Um, and, and like, so it's that hysteria, but specifically the hysteria that you saw from a lot of the same people who were cr- rightly critical of, of Trump to say that, well, all of these Republican judges are just going to rubber stamp what happened. No, fucker, because you don't pay attention to the judiciary does not mean that's how it goes. Um, it actually means that Trump is what? One for 35? One for 34, 35. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and like many yeah. of those are Republican appointed judges. Like, because you lost faith in the judiciary, <laughs> you are actually promoting a view that will eventually degrade the judiciary. You will degrade the thing that actually, unlike tweets, mm-hmm. stopped this shit from happening. So the smart thing to come out of all of this is not just to say that, hey, this shit's been going on for a while, but is to actually parse it out and say, what are the institutions that are holding? The institution that is not necessarily holding here is fucking journalism or tweeting. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, a, few, yeah, a few things please, on this please. is that on the elected Republicans, obviously there are elected Republicans who are who are terrified of their voters, and mm-hmm. they believe their voters to be Trumpy enough that they're not going to say much beyond what Camille was saying. Is that let the process, you know, play itself out? There are very few people, including those encouraging Donald Trump, like. Steve Bannon, who believe in any of this stuff. They don't mm-hmm. believe in any of it. I mean, I mean, Trump, I don't suspect, believes in any of it either. And um, uh, he knows. Uh, he, he knows he lost. He, he absolutely knows he lost. <laughs> all, all of the conspiracy theories were, were born long after he initially suggested that the election had been stolen. From uh, he, he, he suggested it was, it was stolen in like 1988. <laughs> I mean, he's been preparing this for a long time. Even when he wins, it's fraud. Oh, yeah, it's wait, wait, exactly. Like... Everything about the win was fraud. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, so we knew that this was coming. And the guy just wants the highest ratings. And this is the ratings game to him. But, uh, you know, it's worth pointing out that a lot of these Republicans who are not never Trump Republicans that are not elected officials, that are either commentators, intellectuals, think tank people, and who are not the David Frums of the world or, 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 or the Tom Nichols of the world, have come out pretty strenuously saying this is, this is disgraceful. I mean, you know, Rich Lowry, who wrote a book like about nationalism because he was like trying to kind of be Trump adjacent uh-huh. and not be terrible, was like this because I was looking to see what these people were saying. Mm-hmm. And I listened to him talking about it. And it was like, wow, that was a pretty full throated denunciation there. And yeah, this is yeah. across the board. It's not as if the whole Republican firmament is now saying like, yes, we're getting ripped off. It's like Donald Trump and his 
his C team. I mean, look, you're bringing guys in who were literally doing, you know, uh, back pill commercials on mm-hmm. Fox now. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what's his name? What's the Sebastian Gorka? Like, Corey Lewandowski. This was like the, the D list of, of the conservative DC establishment. It wasn't even establishment. And they're not even really saying much at, at this point. But to the, to the other thing about the sort of whataboutism of this is that I will amend that in one, in, in one sense or challenge it in one sense is that it's important to realize historically that this is a new in a few, for, it, it's, it's unique in its very, very Trumpian way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we go back to the, and it's important that people who realize, who, most of the people who talk about politics on my Twitter feed or on, on Instagram, they're friends of mine, they're not necessarily political people, but I think they're more powerful than the fucking Russians ever are because they post <laughs> things on Instagram and they get 25,000 fucking likes. And I'm like, you're a loser, who's like a, you know, a fucking ballet dancer or something, and you've decided you have a blue check mark and you're going to opine about politics. The one thing they don't realize is that not only has, have similar things happened before, right? I mean, Trump is unique in his batshit craziness, in his, like, just the disgusting perversion of power that we've seen under Trump. But the paranoia, paranoid style in, in American politics and anti-intellectualism in American life, Richard Hofstetter's two books, that's the late 50s, early 60s, right? And you look at the Tea Party movement, right? You look at Glenn Beck when he was on television, who was, you know, creating conspiracy theories as he was learning about these groups. He'd (laughs) learn about the Russian Revolution one day and be on a fucking chalkburn on Fox talking about it the next day, right? So much so that Dana Milbank was like, I have to write a book about this. Talk about a, a, a book that hit the remainder bin about, you know, six months after being published. And I remember... Why the Fabian Society isn't all that? Is, uh, that, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, Tears of the Clown was the name. It was a oh, picture of Glenn God. Beck crying on oh, front no. of it. Oh, my um, God. Thank you, Dana Milbank, for giving us that lasting contribution to American political thought. But this is, you know... Where, so I think it's, it is important. I don't think it's what about him to say this. I think it's important to, to realize that... You can convince people of anything at all times in human history because humans are humans, regardless of whether the Russians exist or Newsmax is the thing that everyone's watching. You can find those numbers that say four out of 10 New Yorkers in 2002 believe that Bush blew up the, 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 the towers. I mean, an enormous number of people. I mean, enormous, famous people. KRS-One saying that. The, the guy from fucking Law and Order, I remember talking to him at the... m Richard, was, whatever. was skating up next to it. Uh, you know, the... the uh, What's his name? Bush brought down the top. Oh, yeah. Immortal Techniques. Immortal Technique. Like, that song is supposed yeah. to have, like, 85 million views yeah, on, yeah. On, on YouTube. Why do you look but, at Camille and, when you say these things? Because I ta- I've actually talked to him about this, yeah. this yeah. song and also because he's black. Um, <laughs> two, two things, actually. <laughs> Let's just take them one at a time. But, um, but, you know, that has, like, millions of views. I mean, look it up. I don't know how many millions of views that video has. Yeah. But something gets a thousand likes and it's a QAnon thing and it's a fucking cover story in the Washington Post for, like, eight days. It's insane. It's insane. And I'll tell you what, final thing on this is that I listened to a podcast. I don't know how it came into my feed from ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which uh, employs our friend Josh Zips. <laughs> right. Fantastic. Um, and it Wake ha- up, yuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a host of Get Up, You Cunts. Um, uh, yeah, was it Wake Up or Get Up? I think it was Wake Up. Um, <laughs> wake Up is better. But uh, they had a podcast which I listened to, and it was, uh, it was pretty good. It was a woman who's a journalist, and her mother, Australian woman, her mother 
they advertised. I thought it was interesting. It was like a Q, she's gone down this QAnon thing. I lost my mother to QAnon, right? And it was a thing. It's a podcast about bullshit ideas and bullshit theories. And it was a pretty good thing. But when you listen to it, it really didn't have a lot to do with QAnon because there wasn't a lot of QAnon in it. But that's a pretty good line to pull people in. But it was this woman's mother and she met a guy. Her husband left her and it was traumatic. And she met a guy when she was backpacking in England and he's English and she stayed in England and he's crazy and she believes the craziest fucking shit in the world right now. The craziest shit. Like, you know, coronavirus isn't real. Coronavirus is real, but it's, but it's fake news. It's all this kind of weird stuff. And, you know, as is, I've pointed out a number of times, as pointed out in this, on this uh, podcast too, you never believe just one conspiracy theory. She believes them all. And she got into Holocaust denial, all this stuff. And somebody wrote her, and I thought this was an, an interesting and an important point that we often forget about. Someone wrote her and said, you know, I can't really diagnose your mother. I've just read this editorial. She wrote it like an op-ed piece, like an 800-word piece. But um, she seems like she's suffering from paranoid schizophrenia at this stage in her life. And there is a lot of, and I started thinking about this today. I listened to this this morning. Friends of mine's parents, one in particular, brilliant guy who had a position of, you know, a very impressive position. And I won't name it what it was, but very impressive who went down into this like Lou Dobbs kind of Fox News thing. And so many people that I know who have had parents um, and, a, and another friend um, whose father was a, became cr- like crazy into uh, global warming isn't real. And um, a, a year later, he would go on. He would just, just talk to people in parties and buttonhole them and talk to them for ages. And you see him trying to get away from them. And it, like later, he was diagnosed with dementia. And there's these, there's these people that believe this stuff, older Americans. I found this a lot that I talk to and Trump rallies and stuff. They're not all like this. But the ones, the small kind of thing of, that have like QAnon adjacent things in their flat earthers and all this stuff, there's something else going on there. And it's not Donald Trump that created this. Does the, do the people around Donald Trump exploit this? For sure, absolutely. Do these crappy um, television shows? But what do we do? We, turn, we, we, we prevent people from you know, broadcasting on certain frequencies because they say things that are bad or bullshit. You can present them from, you know, this is what we're trying to do, right? Get Alex Jones off of uh, YouTube. It's not going away, people. And that's the way, it's because people are a certain way. It's not as if Donald Trump tinkered with our DNA and made people like this every fucking time in American history and world history. Why do you think that people in a conversation we had in the Patreon that people got a little exercised about is moments in European history where people are overwhelmed by anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that overtook entire populations of countries. These are just, they're like, they're crazier than QAnon, you know? They start with something and they get, like, this is the way humans can be. And if you think this is unique to America in 2020, I've got a lot of books to send you. Sorry for that rant. but That's uh, absolutely correct. And I would also add that, like, it's a bit all over the place. I Anyone <laughs> who uh, has been uh, dealing with an elderly parent in different circumstances can... Your dad went a little bit that direction too, didn't he? Um, you know, he's a, a consumer of... Um, uh, you know, he was he was the guy who... I mean, he is the guy, I should say. It's not past tense. Um, uh, you know, forwards you the Facebook strings of, of just nonsense. Like, I hear that, you know, uh, Obama is going to nationalize all the mortgages. Yeah, um, that's not going to happen. Um, and, uh, and... But also, this, you know, he would watch Fox all day 
um, hoping to see Kennedy somewhere, and then uh, <laughs> yeah, like we all do, and or uh, or the judge who we uh, met once and like loves uh, and rightfully so, um, until it was like sports o'clock, and then sports comes on, and mm-hmm. and that colors things. And my dad is eighty one years old now, and the brain tubes don't work exactly in the same way that did before, and you know it's more of a a sundowner type of situation, so you start to to um, get a little bit confused by some information at yeah. five o'clock in the in, in the afternoon and evening, and there's a whole ecosystem um, that exists, and it's and it's evil, much more evil than political media and political grift by a lot, because there's an ecosystem that exists to exploit people like that financially steal their money yeah. steal their money yeah. just to really just like not to put too po- uh, fine a point on it to steal their money and then if there's anybody physically in proximity who can see that someone who you know looks like he might have assets um they will find their way to get close to that person hmm. so that exists people uh get to a certain age and have a certain amount of whatever in their lives, and so they attract this, um, and it's awful and evil. But we should also remember that, like the median age, median uh, of cable news uh, viewers has been for a long time around seventy. Yeah, uh, I think Fox when when Camille and I were working there were was like seventy two or seventy three. Yeah, was was the number the uh, the exception would be actually CNN, which doesn't get any ratings, but at least the ratings that it gets is younger. Uh, and sometimes some MSNBC shows, um, mm. Al Sharpton actually uh, was uh, an exception to that rule back when he had uh, a bigger uh, show for whatever reason. Um, Why was traffic problems emails sent? Why was traffic problems emails sent? <laughs> That's a direct quote, by the way. Totally oh, a direct quote. There is uh, no yeah. one worse at reading prompter in America. Yeah. Just watch the just <laughs> bacon. watch the the, the Al, Al Sharpton prompter fail videos. It's I so know bad. all of them back to front. I literally know every. So I've watched bad. them so many times. Yeah, so uh, bad. Vital vital point, uh, and it's it's worth thinking about this always when thinking about politics and thinking about like what's the post Trump world going to look like and blah blah blah. Everyone thinks about this wrong. I think they they start from the politician. That's wrong. Start mm. with the audience. Mm. Start with a demonstrated need or affection or interest in these styles of politicians or these styles of arguments. That is going to be with us. It's going to be with us after Trump is gone. And I think that one thing that, that is worth pointing out, too, is uh, the sophistication gap. And I think that's why you see a lot of this now, this idea of misinformation, Russian misinformation, um, you know, Alex Jones, QAnon, all this stuff, is that the people who you talk to at Trump rallies who say things like that, and you get them on, what's his name, uh, Jordan Kepler, uh, that his show, which is quite funny, and he's, he's, he's an incredibly nice guy and very funny at what he does, and you get these people to say these crazy things, and there's a total lack of sophistication from people like this, and they're pressed immediately, and they start crumbling, <clears throat> and it's like, you know, when the woman in this podcast listens, like, well, if you're a flat earther, why don't you just go to the end of the world, Earth and then they panic and they're like, well, they have guns there and they prevent you from getting to the end of the Earth, right? And so there's a sophistication <clears throat> gap, but let's not use 
this only against those people. Yes. Let's remember that there are people who are highly sophisticated, who make highly sophisticated arguments, Mm -hmm. who are absolutely full of shit. Yeah, they have the trappings of sophistication. Precisely. Christopher Hitchens wrote a great essay about Gore Vidal and about his scrambled brain. And his, his theory was that, you know, the end of his life, when he was becoming close to Timothy McVeigh, like literally mm. sending emails, like letters back and forth to Timothy McVeigh, he had always believed that, that the Pearl Harbor attack was, FDR was in on it and all of this stuff. And, and Gore Vidal is incredibly smart, erudite, overrated, but good novelist. And the man was a conspiracy theorist. He was a bananas conspiracy theorist. If you were to make policy or to create a movement based on the things that Gore Vidal believed, we'd be in a very bad situation. So the fact that Trump people believe, some Trump people believe this crazy nonsense, and it is crazy nonsense. The fact that other people can make sophisticated or seemingly sophisticated arguments about things that are also not true. Because, you know, I have been promising, which I'll never do because I'm too lazy, to write a book about junk history. And junk history has been with us for a long time because history is always used in the service of bad policy and stupid ideologies. Don't think for a second that what the Bolsheviks said about the czar and Imperial Russia was a horrible place, horrible place. But don't think that everything they said was true because it certainly wasn't. They were lying, right? They were Russians and Russia, you know, maybe, maybe they said Russian misinformation there, but any point in history, you can find political movements lying about history lying about the present, and there's nothing unique about this. The way it is transmitted today is unique. The, the number of people it's reaching is, mm-hmm. is certainly unique, but the techniques are as old as, as old as possible. As you can imagine, and just because unsophisticated people now have action, and, mm-hmm. and I, I use that term, you know, with a bit of a, a grimace to say unsophisticated people, but, you know, not college-educated people that can actually cloak their bad ideas in the worst ideas of other people. It's the language of respectability. Yes. Like you have the appropriate vocabulary. That's the better way of putting it. The cut of your jib. The respectability politique is very real. And this is the last time I'm going to mention Martin Gurry and Revolt of the Public before we actually just have the man on the podcast. (laughs) Because You love that book. I I do, because it really helped to crystallize some things for me. I mean, when Trump was running for office, I remember saying, it's not as bad as you think, but it might be worse than you imagine, which is to say, that Trump is not the monster you suspect he is, but things are pretty fucked up and they might be severely fucked up in ways that you can't even begin to appreciate. If you think he's going to break the thing, then the thing is already in severely bad shape. The state of disrepair is so bad that we are in desperate trouble anyways. And I think Gurry's perspective on this like crisis of authority is one that is profoundly underappreciated. There is a tendency to focus on the Twitter and the Facebook of it all and the ability to broadcast messages out to a larger audience of people. But the fact that you can amplify slop is one thing. The fact that the slop seems almost as credible as everything else and that in many respects, the seemingly authoritative sources, the New York Times, the CNNs of the world, in their attempts to respond to the slop and in their panic in response to the genuine crisis of authority that exists and the sort of panicked milieu are degrading themselves even further. Like, there's a real problem there. There's no authority in the White House 
so to speak, with respect to what comes out of it and whether or not one actually can trust and believe in it, whether or not most Americans will trust and believe in it. Maybe the best thing you can hope for is the half that voted for you might believe you, but everyone else thinks you're lying. They don't just think you're lying. They think you're a fucking um, traitorous saboteur who's working with the other side. They explicitly believe this. That is somewhat new, I think, in terms of just how deep that paranoia is and in terms of just the number of places that you're getting it from people genuinely do not feel like they know what they can trust and i think in the age of covid that is perhaps even more apparent than at any other point in recent history Mm. all of these incredibly consequential things should i go to my mom's this weekend or not Mm. am i going to die from this thing the hysterical media coverage around the pandemic the pandemic is real like people are dying Lots of people are dying. How they're dying and the, the, the specific circumstances of it, like all those details matter. And the panic like, probably ought to be moderated in some respect when we pay attention to the fact that 80% of the people who die from this thing are probably over 60. <laughs> it's probably higher. It is higher. But the kinds of conversations we've had around it make it seem as though everyone is at so risk. Wait, are and we've saying, been reminded yeah. over and over again by publications, august publications like the New York Times, oh yeah, kids can die too. No, kids aren't dying from yeah. this thing. Yeah. Like they haven't been, and in general, they're not. Stop panicking people. Stop doing things that make you not respectable. Well, I think, But yeah. that is, but yeah. that's, and, yeah. and for me, I, Matt, yeah. when I point to like, I don't think, it's an option to just highlight the parts of the system that are kind of keeping us safe. Like the, the defect is deeper than that. It's more fundamental than that. There is something amiss in the culture, the, the antibodies that we need to be able to survive in a, a, a ecosystem where there is so much information coming from so many different places that can be, instantly latched onto and spun up in hysterical ways by these various crowds that can be echoed thoughtlessly by seemingly important people. There's something else going on. And I I actually don't know how we wrestle with a lot of it. I don't know how we wrestle it down to the ground, but we do at least have to look it in the face and see it for what it is. And that's why I get very concerned when I hear lots of really smart people who I respect a whole fuck ton who are a bit too concerned with the odiousness of Donald Trump when most of it is just clown car shit. But you can be, you, you can recognize how odious Donald Trump is and he is odious. I yes. Mean, there's I, undeniable. I, get, I agree. <laughs> but, but, while recognize, recognizing all these other things, unfortunately we're at a point of team playing and yeah. team politics in, in, in a way that is, so damaging that, you know, it's on this podcast, for instance, I mean, we talk about this stuff because we interact with people in this city, in New York City, mm-hmm. and we interact with people in our business, in journalism, that over-index for the, the people that are, say, you know, coup stuff and fascism stuff. This is true. So it feels as if, you know, you're leaping to the defense of something. If I was in, in an environment, if all of us were in the environment that was the opposite, we'd probably... You know, be we would approach this in a different yeah, way. Yeah, we'd be yeah. emphasizing something different. I think it is it is a straight the 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 corona stuff is important because we are in a time now in which we are asked to trust people, singular people, mm-hmm. 
trust science. Trust, Listen to trust Fauci. to Fauci. I mean, who I think has been uh, former right that he's been wrong, but you know, uh, trust Cuomo when he tells you. But he's but he's been wrong is, in some important. He's ways been wrong too. in some important ways too. But I I allow that because we all have because mm-hmm. who had any idea what this disease was at the beginning. Um, this virus well, he, was. He did know that that you probably should be recommending that you wear masks. The mask just, thing is, but you know, I mean, thing. people who. But, yeah. I will say that people who hit him on that are often people who don't believe in masks. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, masks. We have, every study that we have seen is, you know, that masks. The efficacy is pretty strong and pretty high, particularly when you're transmitting the virus. If you are the one with the virus and protecting yourself from the virus, it's obviously a lot, a lot different. Um, but you know, I mean, just the latest one you saw from Denmark, which was a, which was a pretty comprehensive study. It cuts infection rate at a pretty significant clip if people are infected or wearing masks. But the argument over that is fine. It's perfectly reasonable to have conversations about this. You're, you're taking people's lives and you're uprooting them and you're changing them dramatically. It's totally understandable that people are like, what the fuck is this? I can't take this anymore. I can't be locked in my house anymore. The fact that none of these people who are these singular ex- experts predicted that that's the way people would react shows you how bad they are at their jobs. Mm. Clearly, if you're telling people to be in their house for six months or five months or six weeks with people who you don't even really like when you don't have to be there with them all the time. Um, I'm not saying anybody in particular. Nope. I mean, you, but, you remember <laughs> early on the, the lockdown conversations, they were talking about months, months, like 10, two years for a, 12, for, for a vaccine, 14 uh, yeah. months, 18 months. We'll that made people the crazy. Economy, yeah. Send people checks. Those are the conversations that yeah. were happening early on. Yeah, well, and look, and I mean, people people restarting too. They're starting, yeah. It's true. And it's just like when people don't trust. To, to back to your original point, people don't trust the authorities. People don't trust people in power. People don't trust people in the media. And then you're in a moment like COVID where you're saying, no, no, like before when we were saying, here's some issues that we're discussing. Now we're actually going to finger wag you and say, I am the authority on this, and this is true, and you have to do this. The reaction from people who generally don't trust authorities is going to be fairly strong. It's going to be strong and it's going to be negative. And yes, in times it's going to be conspiratorial. But the conspiracies that I think have been over-indexed on Trump people for sure. I, I, I think that's absolutely different, true. Different kinds of conspiracies. Different kinds of conspiracies. But again, it is the, the uh, sort of sophistication mm-hmm. of some people that have been experts and have been totally wrong about this stuff and it's it's totally fine to be wrong particularly in a in an example like covid we didn't know anything but it's also better if you acknowledge that in the way that people can magically think about things again back to this boring point but it's the same point that needs to be hammered because nobody seems to be believing this or discussing it is that it is not unique to education level and is not unique to ideology because all i have to ask you is how the fuck did some of the smartest quote-unquote people in the world manage for years to say that things that were happening that were destroying the lives of innocent people were not happening the terror famine in ukraine the purge trials hollywood made a film that the purge trials were fake you know called mission to moscow Michael Curtiz directed it, the man who directed Casablanca, hmm. directed a film in which the people who are purged by in the, the Stalinist bloodletting and the Great Terror are guilty. People who are smart can be convinced of stupid and bad things. It is the most obvious thing in the world, and that is what history is. History is not a series of dates and a series of things that happen. It's a series of smart people believing stupid things and convincing other people that they're true 
in destroying countries, universes, ideologies, you know, continents because of it. And here we are in 2020 saying, I can't believe that this housewife in Manitoba believes that the QAnon is real. Oh, I believe that. So. I believe that they believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it is real, but I believe, you know what I'm saying? So today um, I got two messages from governmental authorities about how I shouldn't travel for Thanksgiving. Mm. Speaking of COVID and stuff, yeah. mm-hmm. over the weekend, all of the nation's newspapers were about how like experts say you really shouldn't travel for Thanksgiving. It's a bad idea. The, the disease is spreading. It's bad. I am probably the least... COVID truther in this room, or at least among the three of us talking. What are you talking about? I don't know. But but that is the appropriate use of COVID truther. COVID truther just means someone who is not in favor of the strongest possible mitigation sledgehammer policies. That's all that bullshit means. So I got, um, I'm not sure which is the more disturbing Right. Again, this is Tuesday before Thanksgiving weekend. Uh-huh. Got a text from the uh, New York Department of Education, hmm. both in English and Spanish, although the Spanish is curtailed, so maybe they're... <laughs> but, uh, uh, and I got a phone call from the city government of Austin, Texas. What? I don't know. <laughs> I, I've been to Austin before. I like it. It's nice. I mean, okay. a couple times. Anyways... Uh, the Austin one's like, you know, hey, look, uh, Thanksgiving's coming up. You got to be careful. Um, but uh, here's the uh, New York uh, DOE. COVID-19 cases are increasing rapidly. Do not gather with people you do not live with to help slow the spread of the virus during the Thanksgiving Can holidays. Can you record a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> like, they didn't really talk about it's that. It's not Thanksgiving. It's not yeah. Thanksgiving, right? Definitely can't record this on Thursday. No turkey, no stuffing. Yeah, I we're fine. super, we like, two days ago, <laughs> there were, like, 15 people on my patio two days ago, so I was already in... 15? Yeah, I was See? already in... More than 10. Non-compliance. Um, Good for you. But the last week in this country has been, like, Oh shit! We got to lock down. We got to not have Thanksgiving. I mean, I'm looking at a room full of at least three people that I would love to have Thanksgiving with, and we're all going to be in New York, and we're like not going to have Thanksgiving together, probably. I told you that. I told you I'm coming to your house. (laughs) I know. I didn't invite you. I didn't invite you. That's the problem. That's right. You got. I'm coming. There's about 52 (laughs) trans people coming. Trans black people whose lives matter. Definitely racist Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) We'll all be there. This is not a problem. Uh, And like everyone is preemptively shaming everybody from like hanging out with their friends and doing this kind of stuff. And like I just presumed in uh, in the atmosphere of all of this that cases must be spiking in New York. Mm. Holy cow. The level of craziness. Nope. They're not. No. Staten Island. Yeah. I mean, it's not really New York. Thank you. Should be new- <laughs> Look at a map. New Jersey. That's yes, where it new belongs. Jersey. Absolutely. Fucking- <laughs> By the way, we, I know we have some listeners there. You guys live in fucking Bayonne. Stop it. <laughs> Cost you 14 bucks to get over the bridge. Get out of here. Stop it. That's not New York. That's like a prison. <laughs> I know the ferry's free, but everyone goes and it's just Europeans. And they That's why back. they have so many prison guards. Yeah. I like the QAnon guy who shot the mobster there. Do you remember that? 
Was that Johnny Balls or? It was like, you know, Ricky Nutsack or whatever, but he got <laughs> shot and everyone thought it was like a Mobland hit. And it was like some psycho guy who was like into QAnon. And I'm like, well, they don't always fail. <laughs> they rubbed out a guy who probably kind of deserved it. So, you know, all right. Oh, but like God. this uh, to me speaks to the the kind of uh question of uh authority and legitimacy and i mean it's it's a concerted hysterical campaign against for sure the backdrop of it's going up almost everywhere in mm-hmm. the country it's not going and up in Europe too and in Europe too so it's like yeah. a thing but like it has all the the smell and feel of like Oh shit! We want to make sure that people don't spread this in Thanksgiving, so we're just going to go full court press on this beforehand. Yeah, even if not necessarily every single place, it is super spreading before Thanksgiving, yeah. right? I mean, are, are what we doing here? You know, I saw a thing the other day. Um, I, the headline pulled me in. It was something about a hot doctor. A guy who was like America's like hottest doctor. I would pull you in. <laughs> Eligible hot man doctor, and yeah. he was in Miami. Was, was he? Was he hot man? Was, oh, he was he a my Gupta? God. I, I will answer that because you said Matt. Um, the hottest <laughs> you all look Camille, alike. I say <laughs> as Matt Welch. Um, <laughs> nice. And he, it was like pictures of him with all these like babes in Miami, and it was like, can you believe this doctor? And it's like I get it because he had told people they shouldn't travel, uh-huh. but I'm looking at the situation. I'm like, it's like. All, I mean, the problem with the situation is like he's kind of looks like like Dr. Roman Polanski, not as if he because it's like these like 18 year old girls, maybe and they're all in this <laughs> boat. And it's like they're shaming. Like, I don't know this situation. I don't know who these people are. I don't know when they got tested. Why are we fucking denouncing this guy mm-hmm. with no information about like maybe that's his, all of his. Maybe he lives with them all. Mm-hmm. If he does, bless his heart, because. I want to be a doctor in Miami. <laughs> Is that a thing I can do at this point in my life? Oh, I can't be hot. That's a hard thing. Um, you, you can look like Roman Polanski, though. Yes, so I can. Yeah. yeah, I'm getting, I'm shrinking and like, like I can't believe it. I love the girls. Um, that's my, he's Polish, but he lives in France. So um, I don't even know what that voice was. But yeah, no, it is, yeah, it is like we are like that ritual shaming that has gone on of like, I saw you at a, you know, restaurant and like the, like the, what's his it's name? It's always something having Governor fun. Governor of New Jersey. What the hell is that guy's name? Chris is? Christie or no, no the other no, one, the new one? No, not the one who almost died but didn't prove the COVID was fake. Uh, <laughs> Obviously It was fake. clearly fake because if he didn't die. Uh, Lou Merloni, I think it was. Yeah, Lou Merloni, second <laughs> baseman slash <laughs> slash uh, scout slash New Jersey government governor. By the way, Lou Merloni is from Framingham, Massachusetts, which is why he's called Framingham Lou, and he is not the governor of New Jersey. One thing that I learned just to derail you is that uh, I derailed this ages ago. Uh, the uh, home helping. stadium of the uh, New England Patriots was called Schaefer Stadium. That's, they, well, I'll give you another uh, data point of, about you. me, which is which is totally boring. My first dog was named Schaefer after Schaefer. Oh stadium. my god! Yes, I'm my dad boring. worked for the Patriots. Yeah, yeah I know, but yeah, like, and your was, first uh, dog was named Schaefer. Yeah, but like Schaefer, what are you doing? He was like a, he was like a half whippet, like half Irish, whatever. You know, I've <laughs> up until this moment, I've only like. It made sense to me that you were a piece of white trash. Yeah. <laughs> Living in like in a semi, like above your station kind of neighborhood. Oh my God, that, yes. That's yes. the whole point of your Absolutely, class rage. Yes. But like. 
that it's really you, not hard to figure out. That you <laughs> actually had a dog named Schaefer. You were such a piece of garbage. I do. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that literally. I paid therapists like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to figure that out. Matt was like, "Let me crystallize this for you about three seconds." I'm like, "Yeah, that's about right." <laughs> you had a dog oh, yeah. named Schaefer. Yeah. Holy fucking yeah. shit! Yeah, he wasn't called like Grogan or something like named for Steve Rich Camarillo, the punter slash whippet dog that I had. What's Z- up, Dad? I got a dog named John Hanna. Bite your fucking balls! Sorry, Did you see the Oregon Governor Kate Brown was encouraging citizens to call the police on their neighbors mm-hmm. if they're having a party? And they wow. see too many people going to their house. Just just a few months ago, we were abolishing the police. Now, if your neighbors are having a fucking party, if they're but having wait, Thanksgiving uh, dinner with what ten is, people, is, aren't there like fifty eight thousand people, people gathered in fucking Portland every day? Yeah, that's together, fine. Cheek to jowl. That's actually fine. Here, Nancy. That's different. Have to use the restroom. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have Nancy feeling because I, we got a feeling because yeah. if the Portland uh, <laughs> governor is a governor. Yeah, look, this, Kate look, they call her, they this is no Kate different. Shirt, which I oh, yeah. Well, you know, by the way, yeah. seems yeah. like they might be right about yeah. that. Yeah. Look, yeah. this is no different than what happens if there's a party down the street and it keeps everyone awake. What do neighbors do? They call law enforcement because it's too noisy. That is just like this. <laughs> it's like a violation just- of the noise ordinance. This is about saving lives and it's about protecting our fellow Oregonians. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you right now, if Trump had won the election, she would not have said that. Sure. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. everything was completely allied against, I mean, every single little thing. If Ted, Ted Wheeler, the mayor, had had gas, it would have been, yeah. it would have been Trump's fault. And when, uh, that, when uh, Aaron Danielson was shot in the chest yeah. by Michael Reinhold, and you know, the next day the t- DA was totally spooked and came out in a press conference with Wheeler, and Wheeler spent seven-eighths of the time railing against Trump. Yes. All right. So now, you know, it's 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 turning a bit. And actually, a couple of weeks ago, for the first time, um, both the DA, who had you know really you know was not blaming any of the rioters and arresting them, and um, Kate Brown said, "Oh, we're going to blame uh, the mayhem on." And this was after this was because I, I was there when they rioted terribly and broke all the glass the day after the election. They all said, "Oh, we're you know we're not going to stand for this from." Left, right, or center. It's the first time. Was there the ever first was there, time? Was there ever a person in a position of authority in Oregon who admonished the rioters, yes. protesters for uh, putting people at risk of COVID? Oh, that considering I, the governor is now saying that you can't have ten people. That I don't. A, that I don't know, Michael. I don't know. COVID has been really. Um, uh, Oregon started super slow. Like when I was back there in the spring, it was like super, super low. Yes. And then they were just overtaken with everything else this summer. That though it was happening, it was just took a back seat. Now they have closed everything down again. So uh, I'm not surprised that now she's going to want. And then it started, of course, a couple of weeks ago with the councilwoman that called the police because she had a bad Lyft driver. You remember that one? Can we talk about that? Because Camille and I have been trading some tech. Matt's been on these chains too, but. He doesn't care about these issues because he doesn't care about anybody but white men Mm -hmm. who look like Matt Sorum. (laughs) That's a Guns N' Roses reference, by the way. Um, That's the real problem with America. I didn't send you this other one. 30-odd people. This was to add to the four stories today. One was from Houston of Mm -hmm. a record number of homicides in Houston. The other one was Mm. L.A. Mm. 
record number of homicides in L.A. And when I saw it before I left tonight, I meant to send this to you, was that 36 or 37 cops in Seattle had resigned mm-hmm. um, and said, we're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's record amounts of violence there, too. So it's, it's funny that we would assume that I hope when Donald Trump has disappeared and we can stop obsessing over him and people in the media can stop obsessing over him, which, you know, rightfully so, he's the president, that we can now look at where we have come in the wake of George Floyd's death, the defunding of the police, that movement, which we were assured was just a joke. <laughs> We'd also ask people like, you know, defund the police. I said, well, we don't mean it. It's like, well, you know, there's other words in the English language. You understand. You can use those. Depends, it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Well, Alexandria we, Ocasio-Cortez was very clear about this. Defund the police means defund oh, the police. Yeah, no, I respect her for, for being honest about it. And anyone know, who isn't know willing to move the conversation right there. Yeah. That's where it needs to be now. We, we progress to this point is a racist. They, they mean it in Portland. Oh, for sure. And they've done it. I mean, they've done it before um, George Floyd. They've done it uh, during. They have taken away, I can't remember the exact name of it, but the ones that... And uh, record in, homicides there, in, too. Oh, right? yes, and investigated homicides. Yeah. They've, they've uh, and uh, I don't know if it's the, the gang task force or something, I can't remember the name. They want to further crime, further yeah. defund it now. Mm-hmm. And um, they're, they're, they're quite serious. And who, you know, the, the pushback that you get um, the sheriff's department kind of, you know, ignores it and they, they go about their business and the other municipalities. But Portland proper, uh, they're, they're quite serious about, about uh, taking money, continuing to take money from the this police. This is a war on poor people, is what it is. Who, who, is, who is being affected by this? Defunding the police. Is well, it is it people in Greenwich, okay. Connecticut and New Canaan, Connecticut? I, okay. Or is it people in, in East New York and Brownsville? I, can speak- I have a guess on that. And the people who want to defund the police are waging war on the poor, period. I, I can speak to a little bit about Portland. It's that, true. Sure, it's the poor, but it's also, you know, the middle class dude that gets his car stolen and had told me, well, the, they just, I called them, they just sure. never came. Or yeah. the person that got like held up outside of their house yeah, and sure. three hours later. Oh, yeah, it's not exclusively a war on the poor, but, the, but like, murders and things like that are, are, are primarily hurting people. Or yeah, low, the, the deterioration in quality of life that you see in places like San Francisco like is material for people across the economic strata. Like they all feel it in different ways. Some of them have the capacity to leave. For some of them, it's just an inconvenience. And for others, as you underscore, people genuinely live in fear of their lives. Yeah. And a 100% increase in homicide rates, even if in mm-hmm. absolute numbers seems rather small, like that's material. It matters if yes, there's two more people who get killed on your block some someplace nearby. And it is worth underscoring because some people are taken aback when they hear the weirdo anarcho-capitalist lunatic who wants to legalize all drugs and decriminalize most things be somewhat miffed by the abolish the police to fund the police crowd. Um, I've seen uh, some people refer to folks as like bootlickers for being yeah. insufficiently on board with this program. And on board with which program? With the, the, police. the police, and that's program. like an like from like anarcho capitalist types. Yeah, not from anarcho capitalist types. Camille just wants to lick the boots to keep them clean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do think he's I do a, think it's worth man. I do think it's worth like making a genuine distinction between decriminalizing drugs, finding ways to make fewer things illegal, so that there aren't these necessary cases where people are having these 
needlessly potentially mm-hmm. dangerous interactions with law enforcement 100%. agencies and that law enforcement agencies don't need all sorts of paramilitary equipment under most circumstances. Also true. They don't require these yeah. things and that there ought to be broad reforms for a lot of procedures where policing is concerned. And there are plenty of circumstances where there probably ought to be other agencies that are involved in helping people who are, say, suffering from mental illness under certain circumstances. Possibly. And, and we've talked Possibly. about this before. Possibly. But I'm, I'm just saying that be very these, are, these are all things that I'm very interested in having conversations sure. about. I think what I'm not in favor of having conversations about is defunding the police simply so that you can redirect all of that money to some brand new agency that you've sort of fantasized about that is imagined to be uh, enormously effective, whether or not this is sort of proven effective. Like, it's just complete fantasy. It turns all, all we need to do yeah, to help East New York is to take all of the money that we're spending on police and spend it on all of the same things that we spend money on in the suburbs. And that will magically like save all of these communities and make them precisely the same. And communities are different and they need and require different things. And I, I just don't know that these simplistic mantras are going to be helpful. And thus the context in which these mantras have been born, the heavily politicized, um, the certainly the, the mostly peaceful protests that are in many instances anything but, um, the, generally speaking, that serve to heighten the level of danger and concern and to create greater tension between communities and their police departments and have made things far less safe than they might have been under other circumstances. And when you have police officers defecting from their police departments in droves, but that's that's probably not a good circumstance. It's probably when, not when you not the sort of are, durable reform. Yeah, that one and when would you have people for. that are single-mindedly focused on the police, and I don't think anybody who listens to this or knows the three of us would think that these things are mutually exclusive. As if we're saying, I mean, I am absolutely on board for legalizing all drugs, without exception, mm-hmm. no exceptions. Yeah, I believe that over policing is a problem. It's a massive problem. But under-policing is too. Sure. And so when you have people who are single-mindedly, ideologically obsessed with the police, right, and, and, and the misdeeds of the police, which are very real and need to be addressed, but see this as an opportunity to, you know, expand that argument and, and only that argument, and you apply that to a particular neighborhood, you apply it to East New York, a good example where I was driving through today. Um, you know, my citizen app goes off when I'm outside of New York and it's a fucking cat in a tree. I drive through East New York and it's like 85 people were just shot in the face during a funeral. The, the, uh, the, the cap on it, it's at a funeral. It's already death and you're introducing more fucking death. This stuff kind of happens. You drive through there and it's like these people who are singularly focused on the police have no idea what happens in East New York and have no sense of what it is that ails East New York. In what it is to correct those problems, nobody does really, because if the, there was simple solutions to that, sure. we would have Be tried over. to apply them, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody from you know my namesake Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the Moynihan Report, and James Q. Wilson, you know, on the sort of center right and the right, and to other people on on the sort of left and left of center now, like people like AOC, who I believe actually has 
you know, a big heart about these things and wants those problems to go away. I believe that she, she does. I mean, it'd be, it would be insane for me to attribute bad faith to that. But the people who are obsessed only with the police and policing, that that's their And, kind and of white thing. supremacy. And white supremacy. Well, it's is, is, is the thing about that to me that is crazy is that you say, like, we have to defund the police. It's like, at, when have I ever heard you say anything about the actual problems ailing Brownsville in East New York, that if you retreat from policing, the problems don't go away. Because it's also stupid. I think that people on our side are, are dumb about this too in one, in one very particular way, is that if you end the war on drugs, which I don't think should be ended tomorrow, I think should have been ended yesterday, it's the worst, most damaging thing that we have taken as a policy position and stuck to and dug our heels in for over 50 years. It is a fucking catastrophe. But don't for a second believe that once you stop doing that, the people sure. that were on the streets dealing drugs are going to start being day traders. They're not going to start <laughs> yeah. like working at the fucking you know, local juice place or something. There's going to be another criminal enterprise that will you know, materialize that they will take advantage of because other problems exist there that are much deeper. What are you going to do about it when you tell the police that they can't have any money? Fine. Tell them to retreat. Fine. Your little social experiment is killing people. I'm sorry to say it's killing people. People are dying. And I don't believe that it's a coincidence that the police are retreating and you can hold two fucking ideas in your head at the same time. The police retreating is bad and that the police do bad things and shouldn't police the way that they do. Be a little more complicated with life and stop living on fucking Twitter where you can have a little 120, 240 character thing that sums up your brilliant ideas that you will talk about ad infinitum and solve nothing. Because people are dying and the homicide rates are going up all over the place. What is your solution to that? Defund the police. I don't really mean defund the police. We want social workers to like, that. you solved it. Thank you. You solved it. You had yeah. some social workers come and they get shot in the face now because the deranged person with the gun is going to be like, ah, oh, social workers, let me put this down and talk to them. I mean, let us get real with this stuff at some point and stop throwing thunderbolts at people who don't toe the line on this exact defund the police. You're not an anarcho-capitalist if you don't believe it. Fuck you. Nobody in Brownsville gives a fuck about anarcho-capitalism. They give a shit about the guy fucking stealing their car, shooting their six-year-old by mistake when they're trying to shoot a 17-year-old. <laughs> this is the fucking world you want to live in? Not me. Sorry. I think it's definitely been the case, and I can only speak to Portland on the specifics of it, that, yes, there's been defund the police for a long time, and, yes, that's happened, and, yes, we've had everything that happened in the spring and the feds and the Trump and all of that. But what they've also done, besides disbanding things like the homicide unit, is that they have people, yes, to oh, the be, serious crime unit, I guess. Is something disband it, the homicide It's not the homicide. It's, I can't remember what it's called, the gang task force. It's, a, it's, a mur, it's basically dealing with, like, serious murder crimes. They defunded that, so they can't have that anymore. I've definitely spoken to cops that have, they were taking early retirement. People are not applying. The situation for the police in Portland is pretty disgusting at this point because you have the loud, cranky minority that they're chasing every night, screaming in their face, literally, kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself. And even if then you've got like, oh, they (laughs) go right up into their faces and go, why don't you kill yourself? And I've seen this a thousand freaking times. And so even though you don't have the like QAnon people are the, 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 the like Joe Q Smith doing that, you know, it ripples out. So there's quietness. But then what else does Portland pass? This is true. Well, you Portland police, 
If you're going to police in Portland, you need to live in Portland. Okay. Most police don't want to live in Portland. First of all, prices, it's more expensive, but also the hate they get and that their kids get in school. I've talking to, I've talking to, and spoken to, um, you know, mothers that are like, my kid is getting shit in grade school because his dad's a cop mm-hmm. or his mom's a cop. But you need to live in Portland. You can't live in Milwaukee anymore. You can't live in Gresham. You have to, by law, live in the city. Is that you, actually a law now? They have passed that. So what is the idea behind that? That you well, have a, a, a tighter be, connection to the community? community you're going to be you're going to be more sympathetic to what's going on in here. All the so people hate you. So it's a you. tighter connection to the people that who live you. to move to Portland six months ago, right? And they can <laughs> tell you to kill yourself, right? You Jeez. have to. I mean, it's just are you are they a question to you guys? Like, are they do they deliberately want the police to continue to burn out and fail? I mean, because that's what it looks like to me. I mean, one hundred percent. Yeah, I don't think they're even hiding that idea i mean what is the uh what is the nancy the um slogan i'm reaching for the i also love that you're on the same mic because you are like joe perry and steven tyler because you have a thing like sharing a mic stand like backs to each other <laughs> singing, yeah, singing fucking <laughs> toys in the attic huh. uh, it's is like that at- song transphobic do you, yeah oh yeah, god 100 yeah. it is yeah 100%. but they kind of look like ladies I mean, either way, Stephen Tyler should be canceled. So it's ironic and transphobic. Oh, we should cancel Stephen Tyler. Well, wait until you hear it's no fun being an illegal alien and then watch the video with the mustaches. It's. Wait, which video is that? What song is this? Illegal Alien by uh, Genesis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not wrong. (laughs) It is actually no fun. (laughs) Super not fun. Yeah, yeah. They they brought up a very important point. Yes. It's an anti Trump song. (laughs) no fun i would add to your righteous rants that i think that people are not really grappling with which is to what extent this weird crazy bad year is changed the trajectory of things for instance i think it's possible that a lot of what we you people you cop loving people over there um are saying as uh a kind of a defund the police reaction is a coronavirus reaction. Like we don't know exactly. It's really, it's damnably hard to figure out the cause and effect of policing. That said, it sure does seem to spike in Minnesota or Minneapolis and mm-hmm. like Chicago and, and New York this year and a few other places. So, and it's up like 37% homicides are up and mm-hmm. like gun violence is way up. So yes. Um, but also like, how this is going to change American cities going forward. You talked about the suburbs, which went overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. How many people moved to the suburbs in the last nine months? We don't know that yet, but it's a huge amount. You live in like Douchebro Harbor, Douchebro Island now. Yeah, it's an island. Yeah, it's an island. It's it's an island only of cops. It's Staten Island. (laughs) Who knows where Camille is going to live by next week? Uh, Like it's like everyone is moving to places, but also like the people are are exiting school systems in Mm -hmm. huge numbers Mm -hmm. today. For a piece that I didn't write, but like I started looking at all of the. Uh, the effects of coronavirus on public school enrollment, and it's a wipeout, dude. It, like people are absolutely just leaving um, yeah. cities. They're leaving public school systems. They're going to private schools, which are up a little bit, yeah. uh, depending on how you measure things. Um, yeah. 
And that's going to change the complexion of cities. There's a, a piece in, I believe, New York. Are you going to die? Are you going to like blow I, I, up? I mean, I There's hope. There's a cookie here. I, I just had a piece of cake. Okay. It's fine. Um, but like, there's 76 million people under the age of 18 in this country. Um, that's kind of a large chunk of people, and they're all having a bad time. But isn't it amazing that that this is an election in which people in the suburbs, like white people in the suburbs, went towards Joe Biden and Hispanic people, and we think black people too, but we have a much clearer sense of Hispanic people, uh, went increasingly for Donald Trump. Well, that's, it's a trend story more than a majority It's a trend story. story, but I mean, it's an interesting trend story, particularly yeah. when you, I mean, that number, if it's, if it is what we think it is, is, you know, 30%, three in 10. Um, that's pretty impressive. If, if, if you're Donald Trump and if you're a Republican, when you consider that the world we live in and the, the narrative about Donald Trump as it relates to Hispanics, Latinos, whatever you say, I will not say Latinx, uh, you know, Hispanics, I will say, um, that's pretty impressive because if you were just to watch the news, read the news in all the mainstream, interact with nobody and come from, you know, Jupiter, you would not understand the numbers that you saw after the election. Well, one and way so of thinking it's about kind of this- interesting of that, that people who are, and this is just the numbers of it, of lower socio- socioeconomic cast are going towards Donald Trump. Well, I, I meant class, not cast. But also uh, think about like uh, one of the They're reasons, not going towards him. They're trending towards him. You're one right. of the reasons why Trump's legal defense of uh, the election is so bananas mm-hmm. is that it always focuses on big cities. Yeah. What's the truth? Big cities, he actually did kind of okay compared kinda to okay last considering, time. Yeah. It's yeah. the suburbs. It's the outlying yeah. things. But he yeah. wants to say that the big cities which are administered by Democrats – whatever they're like obviously fundamentally corrupt that's not where he's losing traction and uh one of the great un preliminarily un uh, approached stories or underobserved stories um it's kind of like a classic manhattan institute type of story going forward which is that it's appalling it's it, it's worse than appalling what america is doing to its school kids right now we're the only country in the world. We're really the only country in the world Quite literally, yeah, who yeah. are shutting down schools. It is doing so much material damage specifically to poor minority communities. Who get so many more services from school, particularly in New York City, than they do of learning. It's a lot more than that. It's awful on every level. And at a moment where crime is going up nationwide as well, um, it's not a wonder that uh, that those communities did not express themselves by voting in gratitude for Democrats who mm-hmm. largely run these cities right now. Um, that is going to be an element of governance looking forward. And think about you know, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the first, you know, sitting president who has like an educator as a wife, right? Dr. Jill Biden is an educator as a wife. They always mention on the campaign trail. Why do they ever talk about Dr. Melania? She has a doctorate <laughs> from Ljubljana uh, Community College. Listen, she speaks, and you know Camille's not listening when you say Melania, and he doesn't even oh, like no, raise an eyebrow, let alone his penis. He's on hinge or something right now. Uh, yeah, what's up at Parler? <laughs> Hacked. Uh, 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 
Uh, I don't even remember what I was talking about. Well, he was talking about like how you know he's not taking Adderall because of the the loss of focus (laughs) that he just he's like literally on his laptop for the past like ten minutes, and everyone's like, "I love when Camille's like, dude, don't blame us. We have to fill the fucking void when he's on when he's on like eBay, like fucking." bidding on like uh, racist memorabilia <laughs> for his collection. It's just a lot of great deals. It's a lot of great deals. <laughs> it's the Black great Friday shit deals. started already. I know. In fact, they're doing Black Friday and Cyber Monday I'm, all month long, which is fucking insane. Yeah, when you, and you're buying racist That tells you how great the Black economy Friday is actually. What, doing. what can you get like Song of the South wise? Uh, so- Black Song Friday. of the South isn't racist. Speaking of Black Friday, I'm just saying Black Friday. I didn't say racist. Not Black Friday. For, if, if but Camille we were making jokes about racism, and then you mentioned Song of the South, and you know that it's a sore spot for me. I'm sensitive about Song of the South. You like that? Movie. I'm sensitive about it's un- not racist. Underdone potential podcast episodes about like how awesome Song of the South is. You know, I don't know if in this year the racial reckoning. This is the time to <laughs> wow. That, he's doing that that burden myself. He's doing right? the headshake people and to devote six. Hours to Song of the South. I mean, it would be it would be a very popular episode to say that. You think so? Um, Yeah. (laughs) One final thing, but before we uh, why don't we just take a turn in that direction right now? We can go to that that right now. But zippity doo. um, I don't think any of these people give a shit about poor people. By the way, I think that's fairly obvious. And the people who 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 you know mug for the camera about poor people. That who live in this city don't give a shit about poor people. They don't live amongst poor people. They never met poor people. They talk about them in this disembodied way. And once in a while, they'll, like John Gotti, hand out a turkey on fucking Thanksgiving and do nothing else. Um, and yes, I did just compare you to John Gotti, who was a great American in some ways. His son was a little soft in the head, by the way. Um, but the thing that annoys me more than anything is that you can say, and I think you can say, and Camille will be mad at me if he was not on... Parlor? Is that what I'm it's listening. Par- parlay? Is it parlay? Yeah. Um, Tinday. Th- that um, matters is that, is that <laughs> <laughs> grinder. Um, <laughs> it's French. It's a French thing. Um, that, uh, that you can talk about racism in the context of, uh, you know, neighborhoods in the Bronx and neighborhoods in Brooklyn and in Queens too, but mostly Brooklyn and the Bronx that have the problems that we see, right? And there is the history of that that created these these places and created the situations in these places. But if that's the only thing that you have, time for you to fuck off. Honestly, if that's all you have, how many people do you know that post on fucking Instagram? And look, I'm sorry to mention this stuff so much, but this is how people communicate, right? This is how people, you know, peacock and they show what they believe and all this stuff. And it's about systemic racism and this stuff all the time. And, and look, I'm, I'm happy as we always are in this podcast, have anybody on to have that conversation and sort of mine stuff from it that is useful. But if that's all you have, you're doing all of it wrong. Because if you believe that that is the only, the one, the thing that has to be solved that ails these neighborhoods, you're out of your mind. You're literally out of your mind. And that's a reason why you see, I think in some senses, more conservative reactions from black people that live in these neighborhoods, right? That rather than white liberals that live, you know, seven subway stops from these neighborhoods. Um, Hmm. Talk to people that live in those neighborhoods, as I'm sorry to say that I am. And they sound a lot more right wing than anybody I know, than anybody I've like hang around with and anybody I live around. Some for sure. Yeah. Some for sure. And it's like, and, and I just think that it's an incomplete 
vision of anything if 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 your ratio of racism talk to talk about other issues in poor neighborhoods, particularly in this city, it's a city that I know well, um, then that's that's something that you have to revisit because it's it's you're doing it absolutely totally totally wrong. It's not. You, I will even say that you can have a problem with the cops that is legitimate, and I think there are plenty of legitimate concerns. And you've got a problem of racism, historic, I won't say systemic, I'll say historic racism. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely true. Um, but if that's where, where you end, my God, you've, you've completed one year of your four-year education. You've got three years left. We should probably wrap up soon. I, I will say that I'm strolling around Bed-Stuy and other other parts of brooklyn i mean you do see more of the defund the police propaganda and such and i do think that all of it is starting to make inroads in some of these neighborhoods and i will encounter bits and pieces of the defund the police yada yada white supremacy stuff in sort of surprising places and in surprising context and i'll hear it thrown back at me by people i know who i think are otherwise bright why do you think and interesting um because it's everywhere and why do you think it penetrates the the minds of people that you would otherwise not think that it would because it's everywhere i mean you think that's it like i mean would you go Slightly further and say that it's because it's a pretty simple solution to a pretty complicated problem. I think that is a great, yes, absolutely, undoubtedly. Yeah. yeah. One, you don't have to think about very hard. But it's also, I mean, I, I think it's also in many respects, like, obviously impractical. And there are things about these narratives. I mean, I had a conversation with a friend, and I, I don't want to get into too much detail about it. Because I don't, I mean... Yeah, I don't want to characterize it in a way, but I had a conversation with a friend recently who, you know, we don't see each other very frequently. And I mean, I I don't even know how much he knows about the things that I do and the many things that I think about certain stuff. But he was telling me about his interesting summer and how he picked up a copy of White Fragility and it changed him. And he discovered. White guy? uh Uh-huh. That this was, he thought it was an important book that, you know, every white person should read. And it participated in these bike rides around like Brooklyn and Manhattan. And I'm, I'm, Moynihan is laughing. I'm not laughing because I, no, that's your white fragility bike rides. I'm laughing. Bike rides where they, they ride to different parts of the city and they see people who have been suffering and economically downtrodden whose lives were, they were oblivious to. You know, how much do bikes cost? You live in a wealthy part, (laughs) probably a lot. Two grand, probably a lot. Look, you live in you live in the balling ass part of Brooklyn. You got yeah. a several million dollar house. You don't know what the fuck is going on. In, what do you think in if the you're shittiest in that parts of East New York? Kid comes up in like tights, like you know what? Like he's on. Like you know what he? You know what he shared with me? What that like? It was an emotional experience. Like they would come into certain areas, and people were overwhelmed by this outpouring of support. All of these people showing up in a mass coming into their community to express solidarity for him. It was real. And for a lot of the people there, it was a real experience. And I, I don't even doubt that for people in the community, it was a real, well, you're experience. taking, his there is no, no, but, but, but I'm telling you that I am encountering more and more of this stuff. And the paranoid sentiments that underlie 
much of what it means to be black in this country. While I think much of it is contrived and completely sensationalist, there are people who believe it to their core. And there's probably an increasing number of people who have found ways to buy into it. Um, even while there are, you know, X percent more people who are voting for Donald Trump or some shit like that. Like mm-hmm. it, it has some purchase. Yeah, yeah, I know. And. But why wouldn't you believe that if you see death around you all the time? But I'm, I mean, but that's what I'm saying. That, but they, to the extent they see death around them all the time, the death that they're, they're that they're concerned about in some of these instances, like the the white supremacy narrative, the cops who hate black people, they, they're they can hold two ideas in their head at the same time as well, where they want the cops, but they also believe that there is a special risk and a special peril associated with being black in this country. Do you think there's an age And a special gap? awfulness about being black in this country. Do you think there's an age gap addressed? amongst people that you know that, that you know, amongst black people that you know that, and I, I, I see this and just people I talk to, and again, this is totally anecdotal, so I don't know how true it is. Um, but the people who lived in a generation where things were so much worse in in a systemic way, in an actual systemic way, codified into law. I mean, we have civil rights legislation that manifests itself in the 1960s. And people that grew up even before that who see this stuff in a different way. And they see it in a different way because what they experienced was much more in your face, whereas people now will even acknowledge, because they do understand it's a fundamental difficulty in explaining their point of view that it's quote systemic or it's underground or it's more insidious because it's not as obvious and because we know that to be outwardly and openly racist or hostile to people of a different race because of that reason is social death it is death in the workplace it Mm. is death in college it is death in any of these places that there is that age gap because the difference is so profound. Yeah, even even anecdotally, I think it's hard for me to say. I mean, I, I definitely have had those conversations with folks where they'll imply that they are somewhat skeptical of yeah. like contemporary claims, and they're somewhat skeptical of the the current movement, but. Is it more likely to be older people than younger people? I'm not so sure. But who whispers to you? I know people do. Lots of people. I know, but yeah, who? Lots what, of people. Demographically. And that's what I'm is, saying. Demographically, it's it's a diverse array of people. Well, keep the one top line demographic as black people. Who talks to you and says... Uh, and I'm saying from an age standpoint, it's very hard for me to say who is more likely to do it. Whether you get it's a lot older of, people. Yeah, yeah. A lot Why of don't they say it publicly? I think they are concerned about being outcast why are you not seeming insufficiently concerned because i don't give a fuck about the us and the we was there ever a point in which you said for my life for my bank account for my social existence uh, i should care about that a little more no but i've thought in many instances probably more so in like recent months than at any other time in my life that uh, maybe I should just stop talking about this shit because it's, it's not something that exhausting. other people think on the yeah. other side of this ledger. Yeah. Nobody ever thinks that on the other side. Like yeah. I, just I completely, I completely believe these things, but it is exhausting. I've always had like weird heterodox ideas about race shit, 
but we could talk about, you know, between the world and me. And at some point that goes away and it's not the most important thing in the world anymore. But the new presidential administration is being sworn in and he's got a couple of priorities. And one of them is to take care of COVID and the other is to restart the economy. And then third after that is racial equity. <laughs> like it's it's a, a policy informed in many respects by all of the ideas that animate someone like Ibram Kendi. And it's astonishing to me that these frankly absurd and explicitly, in my estimation, dangerous ideas and retrograde in the sense that at some point like we had a, a broad agreement in this country that the thing that mattered was equality under the law. And here's someone who says, no, 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 that's wrong. The only remedy for historic injustice and inequality under the law is more inequality under the law in favor of disadvantaged, previously disadvantaged populations. It's grotesque. And so it's, when it and gets it's, to the and presidential gaining, level... And it's gaining ground in a way that is astonishing to me, so much so that at times games. it just feels like... Yeah. Is there a point at which... I don't even which, really want to do this shit anymore. No, but is, and the question is, is there a um, point at which, and we can you know wrap it up on this as opposed to me interviewing you, is, that, is there a point at which... You know, and and people who subscribe to the Patreon, you should subscribe to the Patreon, um, who are impatient. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, for the, I'll just stop. Uh, impatient. Unless that's what you want. Yeah. In which case, <laughs> give the money and I'll stop. Well, that's too. the question. Right. <laughs> that's right. If you for give the, way more, yeah, I'll totally. Yeah, you got to keep Camille. Just send the note. It, you know, the, <laughs> the more money he want. gets, the more angry he is. <laughs> it's true. Um, <laughs> get angry about other things. But the people at the Patreon, they will get their "Be Brave, Call Bullshit" T-shirts. Wink, wink. Soon. Mm. So stop complaining. Um, it's coming. It's a fucking pandemic. Relax. Um, do we ever you got nowhere s- to go? You can't leave. Your yeah. Fucking what are you going to do? Who are you going to show that T-shirt to? Your fucking wife that you can't stand? Your boyfriend that you can't stand? Come on. You're not going to wear it on your Zoom no. call. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> you have to wear your Shit, no. Black yeah. Lives Matter mask exactly. during your Zoom call. You're going to get fired for that. God. But is there a point at which that T-shirt is replaced with I'm exhausted, I quit? Right. But whose T-shirt? Yours. Oh. I mean, Be Babe Call Bullshit is a Camille thing no, that just no, kind of dropped I, out of I your can't. mouth in one Patreon episode. And I get some kind of sense, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, that there, if there is a certain volume of this stuff, like mm-hmm. the fire hose of it, is just like, you know what? Fuck you guys. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I won't actually stop. I've had those thoughts, but I won't actually stop. It's, it's consequential. Um I think ideas ideas matter. And as I've said, I also continue to believe that the the racial equity shit is just one manifestation of kind of a category of bad ideas. And you have to confront it in that form and be prepared to confront that category of bad ideas in some other form. But you know later. what's frustrating? It, for me as an uh, observer and for the, all the people that listen to this podcast that, that listen specifically for your takes on this, especially now after what's happened in the past year, is that nobody will debate you on this. Well, I would be really happy if, you know, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, ta Coast, these people were like, yeah, Camille, like he's a bright guy and let's just, let's just sit down and hash this out. Yeah. And that's why, you know, Wes Lowry can say whatever the fuck he wants for the rest of his life and he has my undying respect for actually coming on and discussing this with us. Mm-hmm. It's really hard these issues to get anyone to actually sit down and talk to you about. Yeah. Well, they don't, they don't have to. Um, 
that's the best so they, answer so they don't heard. they don't have to don't but have some to. but some of them some of them will um and i mean i mean no disrespect when i say it but some of the lesser lights are are happy to try and make their bones in conversation with me um i think there's a thing that john mcwarder and i are doing with a, a gentleman whose name is escaping me at the moment but it's yeah, it'll be interesting. I tweeted something about it. I don't remember any of the details now because it's like midnight. It's December 1st. I yeah, think. December 1st. It'll be online. I'm sure there'll be some recording of it as well if you can't catch it live. But Wait, what is this promoted? December 1st, what's happening? It's American Public Square, and they are hosting this debate. And as I mentioned earlier, the title of this program is Anti-Racism, the Solution, or Part of the Problem. It's you and uh, the great John McWhorter up against... Jay Bailey is he's like at Jay Bailey on Twitter. All right. Um, he's a husband, dad, Davidson College professor. Oh yeah, I know Harvard. Him. I, I actually, fellow. yeah, I actually know who he is. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Is he is he a smart fellow? Um, <laughs> I'd be interested to watch the debate. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you you gonna you gonna mop the mop the floor with him? Well, <laughs> well, he has a new book coming out. Anger. Anger and a Sense of Betrayal Drive, quote, this is the name of the book, Why Didn't We Riot? Which, I don't know. You, you won't riot? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that's about. I haven't read Isaac's book, so I'll, I'll try to find Isaac's book and read it. Oh, um, read, read, the, uh, read the inscription. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, on, the way, on the way out. Um, yeah. So, uh, in the... So, yeah, uh, that's December 1st. And it, it should be interesting. I, I'm, I, I actually hope in that conversation to draw out some of the differences of perspective that I have with uh, my, my friend, um, in some respects, uh, mentor, Mr. John McWhorter, because there are some of those, too. Yeah, you guys got make some Make it a little bit more interesting. I mean, that's why it's why that the podcast he does with Glenn Lowry is, uh, is so great, because they mm-hmm. disagree on so many things. Before <laughs> we head so. out, we... we um, Camille said something about leasing things and buying things and moving things. And uh, because of that, we uh, did a little heist tonight, mm. rolled up in front of with the COVID cars uh, up in front of the Freethink uh, headquarters and uh, collected <laughs> just booze. The, just the office in New York and not the headquarters. Well, the New York headquarters. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, the, we, you know, and people have given us a hard time because... You've sent us booze, but you know it is it has gone into the great COVID void. Mm. And this mm. was one that I grabbed so we could we could drink tonight. Um, bottled in Bond. This is Old Forester, eighteen ninety seven, mm. Kentucky Straight Bourbon. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's fantastic. Um, I think it is because really th- there's a certain point at which it Super all yeah. tastes the same to me because I've been drinking. Um, but there was a note attached to it, and that's why I grabbed it, because it's the easy, easy one to, uh, to read the note. But the note, um, wait, wait a second, hold on, I hadn't actually read this note. It's fine. Uh, now I have. Um, Didn't use the N-word. What? Didn't use the N-word, it's okay. Oh, he did three times. It's not true. It's addressed to Camille. Oh, uh, of course. So you and I shouldn't have been drinking this. Yeah. Um, as promised in my email, Uh-oh. I've enclosed a bottle of that my Camille favorite spirit. Definitely red. Yeah. It, my, my favorite spirit. Enjoy. This was uh, uh, dated January sixteenth, two thousand twenty, and this is from Paul M. Uh, Paul knows his last name, so thank you, Paul. 
very much. We're, we're finally clawing our way through the big heap of booze. It is and delicious. This one is delicious. It's, it's also warming the lips. It's also a hundred proof. Oh, so that's why the that's why it's uh, peeling the Dear peeling God. the flesh off my lips and uh, and yeah. uh, uh, acting as uh, something that gives me reflux right thank now. But it's Paul. delicious. So thank you, Paul. And uh, I guess we uh, got to get out of here. We missed my favorite story, though, and I just want to say that we should uh, do it next time. What story what is that? The Jordan story? Peterson one. Oh, oh my God. no, you can mention that real quick. Can I do Jordan, a quick Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Jordan one? Peterson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you guys actually sent me a text, and this will go out on this. Uh, you guys sent me a text. Yes, yeah, the microphone over there. Microphone. Pour me a glass of that. Well, I'm just giving Camille reach, the booze. I can't reach your glass, motherfucker. Well, fucking. <laughs> she's oh, like, shit. She's, you <laughs> apparently can't reach your own glass. He's, he's got to be close to his microphone Do you to need pour. Me to help I, you do. Over there? I do. I do. And I don't by the way, you just poured that I delicious whiskey into a glass I'm gonna uh, half I'm gonna, full of wine. I'm going to so. lick it off the floor. Oh, my God. This it's is fine. really. It's, it's like a replacement's concert in 1985. It's Weinsky. Wow. What you just have? Thank you, Nancy. What a disaster this is. Um, you've never had bourbon until you've had bourbon so, wine. Uh, Look at this shit. Look at my uh, my adapter there. The just adapter do another hour. Fucked everything up. Let's go. <laughs> another hour? What? Yeah, let's do it. So, uh, oh, what was that? This is a disaster. Yeah, you know, the most interesting thing about the pandemic? Well, okay. All of the people... Let's who are that. going to be driven to OnlyFans to make some money because you they'll be unemployed. On the OnlyFans. <laughs> Is that an offer, Camille? I mean, like... Actually, I thought about it. I yeah. talked to Tracy about it. I told her. I thought if we started fucking on OnlyFans... What? I think what? we'd probably make a little money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can be. Can- fucking is... Yes, Nancy. Fucking is <laughs> <the best> thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's I've actually not a euphemism. This. It's just when they say that's they what they it say means. Fucking, it's usually a sex thing. And I'm saying for clicks, <laughs> yeah, for clicks and for money. You fucking <laughs> what you doing? But I think you have to get in there early. I don't know why. I think, I think you have to get in. I, the only reason, by the way, for all these people listening, are like, what is? Why would you stop? It's just as Matt likes it so much. <laughs> but don't you, I'll do not, anything. Don't you agree that you have to get in early? Because at the end of the day, like once <laughs> everybody is on OnlyFans, then, then nobody fucking on OnlyFans. <laughs> no, no, everybody keeps doing it, but you're just not making much money. What? You know what I'm saying? So you're saying that OnlyFans is becoming like the sexual version of Substack? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. If we combined all that, it was like writing, fucking. Su- Substack, podcast. who this, this week said that they, you know, are happy to let people do whatever they want on Substack as long as they're not proliferating misinformation. Yeah. Well, Famous yeah. last words. So much for, yeah. so much for our goes. Substack. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, speaking of misinformation, you guys uh, texted and Matt said um, it's very, very funny, the Jordan Peterson thing, and I had no idea what he's talking about. So immediately I went to the Twitters and I found out that Jordan Peterson, um, who has been in some sort of like Russian detox hospital or something, I I was never a Jordan Peterson fan. I was never not a fan. I just didn't yeah. get his appeal. Yeah, I've never listened to it. I was like, okay. I've still yet to look into I all just, that shit. I don't get it. I don't know. I just don't get it. Yeah. So, so I don't know much Happily about Happily ignorant. Yeah, I don't know much about Matt him. told me his book is not very good. What, the 18 it's rules like to... Actually, it's, it's, it's fine. Well, I mean, it's not like revelatory. It tries to be. 
Yeah. Sure. But yeah. No, but I'm, is it wrong? Because they do it in this article. Uh, is it wrong to just, as people to call say, it like, a totem of white supremacy? Yes, <laughs> well, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I assume <laughs> that, that was. But it's, it's it, that it's all like, you know, <laughs> sit up straight and clean your room. Clean your it's room. more than that. Uh, it is well, cleaning your room is white supremacy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I've always thought I mean, that. seriously. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, for European those who notions are interested of order in it, I wrote a long piece uh, for reason. Uh, an essay about the book and about the the phenomenon and like it, he mixes you know silly uh, uh, kind of self-help tropes with uh, thoughts about the use of mythology and literature and whatever and he kind of mixes it all up in, in an interesting stew that is kind of pitched at the wayward Utes who might otherwise go to the Proud Boys hmm. although it's not really pitched as that and it's not really about it doesn't even spend a lot of time complaining about the stuff that people who are mad at Jordan Peterson uh, are worried about that he's always about you know worried uh, about uh, like gender pronouns and all that kind of stuff he doesn't get into the culture war until like page 300 of his book so it's really not a big deal. But go ahead, Michael. Well, get to the I just want to say one so, thing, Michael. Yeah. You said that, you know, uh, and I read that little blurb today. It's like, you know, well, you know, this they were all crying in the in the, in the, the publishing company. Like, it's like, because, you know, he was, you know, beloved by the far right. Well, he's the book sold three million copies. Okay? Far right's so very they're, big. They're, no, it's not. I mean, that's very literate and very you big. Know, they, it's like a lot of people got something from this book and not all of them are, you know, extremists. It's a kind of sort of. Just I mean, I wonder if what percentage kind of, of them are at all. I mean, it, it, exactly. it's I don't exactly. trust people like this, but apparently uh, his Canadian publisher and uh, Jordan Peterson is himself Canadian Penguin Random House Canada the employees revolted, as we have seen in a number of places uh, recently from Spotify. Mm. Um, Hachette. Uh, Hachette, uh, who uh, dropped a book, a Woody Allen book, which I read um, and enjoyed in parts, uh, which I thought was very funny in parts, and pretty interesting and illuminating in others. Uh, not great, but uh, not something to walk out over. But they did something similar and said that uh, they shouldn't be publishing this. And this is a quote in this article, uh, from a junior employee who is a member of the LGBT community. I don't know what that community means. Uh, uh, who attended this town hall. They had, they had a town hall because there were complaints about them publishing Random House. Very, very big, reputable publisher has been around for many, many years. Uh, he is an icon of hate speech and transphobia. And the fact that he's an, and the fact that he's an icon of white supremacy Regardless of the content of his book, I'm not proud to work for a company that publishes him. Another employee said, quote, people were crying in the meeting about how Jordan Peterson had affected their lives. They said one coworker discussed how Peterson had radicalized their father. And another talked about how publishing the book will negatively affect their non-binary friend. I don't even know if this is real. The company since June has been doing all these anti-racist and allyship things and them publishing Peterson's book goes completely against this. It just makes all of their previous efforts seem completely performative, the employee added. There's more to this, but, but uh, a, a couple of quick, quick things about this is that, um, one, this is actually the problem that you have by doing these, these uh, you know, post-George Floyd's uh, allyship workshops all the time is that your employees tend to think you're something that you might not be, um, which is a company uh, that is trying to, to make money and sell books. <laughs> and more on that in a second, because there's a very funny quote about that in here. Uh, but the other thing is that 
I thought it was quite, quite interesting that I've seen a number of examples of this recently, that the presumption is, because Jordan Peterson is a, you know, popular person amongst a certain kind of subset of an ideology, that uh, this is dangerously racist. Though I don't believe, as far as I can tell, and again, I, I admit that I'm not an expert in Jordan Peterson, but I did a quick uh, search that he's spoken much about race. Nope. So, no. so the presumption is that, you know, they've done this anti-racist training. How can they publish a book by somebody who doesn't say much about race? The, the company's Diversity and Inclusion Committee received at least 70 anonymous messages, brave as all get out, uh, about Peterson's book. And only a couple in favor of publishing it. Uh, there's a statement from from. They have to the protect company. minority rights, then, right? Well, this is it means you uh, have to publish it. This is see see what I did there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do. see what I did there. It's a very long piece. Where is this published, Moynihan? <laughs> I have no idea. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> a uh, quote from the, uh, one of these employees at the end who says this. Mm. It's absolutely remarkable. They're not going to acknowledge the reason they're doing it is for money. Mm. I feel that it would be a more honest route to go rather than making up excuses for Jordan Peterson. We publish a lot of people in the LGBTQ community. And what is the company going to do about making sure those authors are still feeling supported by a company that's supporting uh, someone else that denies their existence? Hmm. So there's a couple of things about this. A few more quotes about um, they're doing Is it that for... true? Does he deny their existence? Uh, no. I don't believe that's true. No. <laughs> but again, not an expert, but I don't believe that's true. Um, <laughs> but the great thing about this is this sense from, I imagine all these employees are, you know, in their 20s, um, that they're doing this for money. And everyone's like, I, they need to be honest about why they're doing this. They're doing this for money. Yeah, the book sold 3 million companies and, and, and they're a company that is a for-profit company trying to make money off books that people want to read. But it does actually shine a light on what is become of these young, young, I guarantee you they're young employees, it says they're junior employees, that inhabit publishing now. They're often baffled to find out that the purpose of the place that they work and custom a paycheck is not a, just a social justice organization. It does actually exist to make money. And they're saying, well, they should be upfront about it. It's like, well, well, no, it's almost like saying I have to be upfront as a mailman that my job is to deliver the mail. Well, obviously it is. Also, I drive around in the truck and I have the uniform and I'm full of letters. Also, if you, this, if, is like, if you a, this is crazy. If you're a publisher that has, you know, sells 3 million copies of a book, then you can publish other books because you have profits. Yes, of course. Hi. Yes, so yes. So should you then get rid of all those profits and publish fewer books? Yes. yes I mean, Harry Potter, I mean, yeah. I worked in publishing and you know this about publishing and you have, you know, written books and you know the publishing world very well, Nancy, is that there are a couple of books, a handful of books that make the entire list. That's right. So you pay Salman Rushdie a million dollars because he's Salman Rushdie to write a book. It sells 30,000 copies. It's not making that advance back. So why are they not going out of business? Because fucking Harry Potter is paying for everything. Because Jordan Peterson is paying for everything. All the books that you want to read that nobody else wants to read, mm. the stuff about, you know, uh, trans rights in Uzbekistan, that is something that Jordan Peterson is actually going to pay for. Wow. And so you're right. saying that Jordan Peterson is a huge advocate for trans people. I am sure he for only trans is. literature. Only in Uzbekistan. Yeah. Yeah. But that I, I just love this, that this is now this, uh, we're told that 
you know, focusing on these woke things is just a stupid thing to do. It's a couple of people here and there. It's like they're, you know, growing in size and they actually are in positions of power in institutions like publishing where they got Woody Allen, the most famous fucking American director, probably with, you know, Scorsese and a few others of the past 50 years, got an enormous publishing company to drop the book because they staged a walkout and they said we shouldn't publish these things. If you, here's my only, uh, uh, you know, actual point on this. If you work in publishing and you don't believe books should be published because you don't like the ideas, you're in the wrong business. Amen. Stop working in publishing. You can go work for the Human Rights Campaign. You can work for a number of places that are more amenable to your very narrow Stalinist views. But publishers publish lots of people, particularly Random House. If you don't want to work for Random House, go work for Verso. Verso is a left-wing publisher that it's publishes... It's actually called Random House. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a house with almost random ideas. Random House. <laughs> so, oh, so there God. you go. That's, that's, uh, it's like a vegan going to a steakhouse and saying, I don't want you to make steak. Anymore. Well, that's what they want. They want to turn all the steakhouses into vegan restaurants. So These, That's what this is. So are we going to break the law and do the Thanksgiving turkey day shit at your house, Matt Welsh? Is that the plan? Here's the problem. I want to go on the record about this. I was told to I want when I came I, I, over here. Cuomo so, to know. Okay. So the record is that we have a cramped house, small, you know, regardless good. Of, of air concerns. Yeah, because I want to be sure that I'm getting all of the COVID out of your but lungs. But you put that filtration system in recently, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but like we would have the patio mm-hmm. for everybody and ready to go. It's yeah. supposed to rain all day. Is it going to rain? Yeah, that's the problem. We would totally do patio Thanksgiving. Hmm. Fifths giving would be at our place Hmm. if it doesn't rain. Well, you know what we could do? We could do something at Four Seasons Landscaping. Yes. I'm sure that venue is available. And we could rent that. And we could just go have Thanksgiving there. Yeah. Put a tarp out. Yeah. Well, yeah. we do. We do. Have well, you don't need the tarp. You we, just have all the dye from my yeah. hair <laughs> running down my face, sweating. Yeah, that's dye. how you would know it's a serious coup. Yeah, <laughs> because of the dye running down my face. The fuck! What an insane year this has been. What an insane. But I'd say what I think it's great. Insane. I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks about Trump or what. I, I'm just glad that we don't have to deal with it anymore. And we can focus on other insane things rather than just the insane person insane who is the leader of the free world, yeah. which is depressing. And uh, we'll no longer be that. Weirdly, yeah. the coup failed. Yeah. That uh, you know, we haven't, Pinochet failed. We haven't spent enough time talking about the very, very fucking shitty track record of Biden's team and his various foreign policy experts. Like, oh, we'll get to that. When they... some of it? Fuck those. We did, but we didn't spend sufficient time talking about that. I want to spend more time shitting on them and underscoring their awfulness, the graft and corruption. And yeah, I'm super ageist. I mean, you said it. You should right. be. Okay, corn pop. All right. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.